you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through verses 30. And the title of this morning's sermon is, Without Christ, You Will Die in Your Sins. And so today we must look to Christ for our provision and for our hope and for our forgiveness and for our joy today, because without Him, we will die in our sins. Here, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 21 through 30, we'll read what the Apostle John writes. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning, and we pray for insight into your word, which is infallible, inerrant, and without anything to do other than point us to Christ, to point us to the teachings of of Christ today, God. We thank you that your word is reserved for us uh, so that we can learn what Jesus meant when he wrote these things, when he said these things recorded in Holy Writ, God. So we need your help today to understand and apply these truths in our hearts, and in our lives. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Without Christ, you will die in your sin. This statement reminds us today that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This statement points to the fact that there is life and there is death. This statement teaches us that there is one grave consequence to our sin, and that is death. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible teaches that God created heaven and that God created hell. God saves lost sinners and God condemns the self-righteous. God exalts the lowly and he crushes the proud. God provides eternal life through Christ, and God condemns to eternal death those who do not believe in His Son. Thanatophobia is what psychiatrists and psychologists call the fear of death. Doctors tell us that the most common symptoms of this death anxiety, as it's also called, include panic attacks, increased anxiety, dizziness, sweating, heart palpitations, nausea, and stomach pain. When episodes of thanatophobia begin to worsen, you may also experience emotional symptoms including anger, sadness, agitation, guilt, and persistent worry. 
Well, what is the world's solution to this fear of death? One solution the world offers is talk therapy, which is sharing your feelings with a therapist who will help you in return learn ways to cope with the fears that occur. You can also have cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on creating practical solutions to your problems. You can also try out relaxation techniques such as meditation, imagery, and breathing patterns that might reduce your physical symptoms of anxiety. And of course, there's always medication that a doctor can prescribe to reduce, to reduce anxiety and feelings of panic. But the Bible offers a different way of diagnosing and treating death anxiety. And while we can all relate to the idea that thoughts of death can be unpleasant and unsettling for any Christian, we are told in the Bible that any type of anxiety is a sin. And while it's not listed as one of the Ten Commandments, it is prohibited by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6.25, Jesus speaking, says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Matthew 6.27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Matthew 6.31, Therefore, do not be anxious. Matthew 6.34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus offers a remedy to anxiety, and that is to trust in Him. That's why He says in that same passage, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus is essentially saying that if you trust in Him and seek Him, then you don't have to worry about the problems of this life, and in return, you don't have to worry about your death either. We're also told how to handle anxiety by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so what we're seeing here is that worry or anxiety is a sin, and the solution is the Savior and not a secular therapist. The solution is salvation and not talk therapy. The solution is knowing Christ, loving Christ, and following Christ from a transformed heart and not cognitive behavioral therapy. What I'm saying is this, death comes to us all, and those who don't know Christ will die in their sins and face the eternal consequences of hell. On the other hand, those who die in Christ will receive the grace of God when they die, and they will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Only the pure in heart will see God. And so let me ask you this morning, are you afraid of death? Should you be by just hearing what Christ says, that without believing in Christ, you will die in your sin. So let me ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Do you have spiritual life? Are you trusting in the Lord? Is death a doorway to heaven for you or a doorway to hell? Are you a believer or a doubter? Are you walking in the light of life or are you walking in the darkness of your sin? Are you a child of the world or are you a citizen of heaven? Well, this morning, I want us to look at three headings from this passage that will help us see that without Christ, we will die 
in our sins. The first heading, if you're taking notes this morning, you'll find it for you there in the bulletin. This three-part outline starts off with the great divide, the great divide, verses 21 through 24. And your first blank this morning, if you are taking notes, is that sub-point there that says, not all who seek Jesus will find him. Not all who seek Jesus will find him. Look at verse 21. This is what Jesus said to them. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, it might sound a little bit weird when we say all who seek him won't find him because doesn't Jesus also say in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given unto you, seek and you will find. Well, that's only true if you're seeking with sincerity, if you're seeking Christ with a pure heart, if you have a teachable spirit, if you're desperate for the things of God, then he will reveal himself to you through his word. But in this context, Jesus is dealing with an entirely different crowd. He's dealing with prideful Pharisees who want to test Jesus and they want to have some charge to bring against him. Jesus is dealing with chief priests who had sent officers to arrest Jesus while he taught at the Feast of Booths. Jesus is dealing with unbelieving Jews who wanted him dead. And so in this context, we read, he says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Please note here in verse 21, the beginning of the verse says, so he said to them again. This means he's already said this once to them. Look back at John 7, John 7, verse 33 and 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. At that time, in John 7, they thought Jesus was going to go to the dispersion to teach the Greeks which was deplorable in their eyes. They just, uh, just hated the thought of Jesus saying that he would go to the Gentiles and be a light unto them. And what Jesus is saying is that after the crucifixion and after the ascension, that he would go back into heaven, and where he is in heaven, they will not be able to come. They will not be able to join him there. And this concept is vividly illustrated to us through Christ's parable of Mark or Matthew, rather, chapter 25. Turn there with me, if you will. Again, we might be thinking, well, wait a second. If you seek, aren't you going to find? Well, not necessarily, because he's making the statement here that these unbelieving Jews will not find him, though they may seek him in the future. And in this parable, he illustrates this. The ten virgins, there were five foolish ones, and there were five wise ones. The five wise ones had enough oil in their lamp as they waited for the bridegroom to come. The five foolish ones didn't have enough oil. And you remember the announcement was made, the bridegroom is coming, Matthew 25, 10. And while they were going to buy, the foolish ones asked for oil from the wise ones, and it was not given to them. So they go out to buy some oil. Then what happens? The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him, to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. This is an example of those who will seek him, and they will not find him. That where Jesus goes, they cannot be. You see, there is a great divide between those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. There's a great divide between those who are able to get into heaven through the grace of God through Christ and those who are left behind. And so when Jesus says, you will die in your sin, he is saying to them, you are guilty. 
you are an unbeliever. You will face the consequences. This is not an all roads leads to heaven type theology. This is not a loving God would never send anybody to hell type sentiment. This is not a because God is a loving God, we're all okay type of statement. No, Jesus is saying you will die in your sin. Not only is it true that not all who seek him will find him, but it is also true, your second sub-point, that not everyone can come. Not everyone can come. Look at verses 22 and 23. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And so when Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come, the Jews at first thought he was talking about going to teach the Greeks. And now they think that maybe he's talking about committing suicide because they say there in verse 22, will he kill himself? This is a slap in the face. This is a condescending comment. They're saying to Jesus, what, is he going to go commit suicide? Suicide in that day was thought of as the unthinkable sin. In the Jewish mindset, it was even unforgivable. It was Josephus, the secular historian, who wrote, quote, the souls of those whose hands have acted madly against themselves are received by the darkest place in Hades. And so when Jesus says this, they're thinking, is he, he going to go kill himself? And what is so ironic about this is that Jesus was going to willfully give up his life, not as an act of suicide, but as an act of sacrifice, not because he was not pleased with his life, but because he was pleased to do the Father's will. This was not going to be an act of shame, but an act of salvation. This was not Jesus running from the problems of this world but rather him running to the cross to fix the problems of this life by offering up his body as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. He's showing us how he offers it freely. This is not a suicide mission. Again, John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. We also read how Jesus said to them in verse 23, you are from below, and I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. Partly what he's saying here is you just don't understand because we're not from the same place, right? By, by this, Jesus means that they are from this earth and he is from heaven. They are mere men. He is the God-man. Their origin is from below. His origin is from above. Furthermore, when Jesus says you are of this world, he is saying that you are from this world's evil system. The word world there, cosmos, is an important term in the New Testament. It refers in this context to the invisible spiritual system of evil that opposes the kingdom of God. So he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm of the Father, and you are of the evil system of this world. It, 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 he's saying here that, that, that the world is going to offer up lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. The world is under the control of Satan. The world does not recognize Jesus' true identity. The world loves darkness rather than light. The world is utterly blind to spiritual truth. The world is filled with hatred toward Jesus and his followers. The world is full of materialism, immorality, humanism, pride, and selfishness. In fact, we're told by the same author, the apostle John, in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in 
him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, we see here this great divide between those who are of the world, who will die in their sin, and those who are of God, who will be born again, true Christians, that they will abide forever. And so, not everyone who seeks Him will find Him. Not everyone can come. And the third subpoint here says, not unless you believe. Not unless you believe. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now, the first time Jesus said this in verse 21, notice that it's in the singular. He says, you will die in your sin. And this emphasizes that categorically, His listeners, you and I, are sinners. You will die in your sin, a category that we are sinners. But twice, in verse 24, he uses the plural, and he says they would die in their sins, plural, which emphasizes there are a lot of sins, right? There are a lot of sins in your life. These prideful, self-righteous Jews needed to know that they weren't just a little sinful, they were very sinful. And yet we do see, in verse 24, some hope in this verse when Jesus says you would die in your sins, the grammar leaves room for the potential of changing that. It doesn't say dogmatically that it has to happen, but potentially it could happen unless you believe that I am He. Now, if you don't believe that I am He, you will die in your sins, but if you do believe, there could be a change. You're doomed unless you believe. And so, to believe is to have faith. To believe is to trust. To believe is not a passive acknowledgement, but a fact uh, it's not a passive acknowledgement in f- just a fact, but rather an act of trust in God with all your heart. To believe is to have an accurate knowledge of the fact that God is holy, He is creator, and that He demands perfect obedience to His law. To believe is to agree with God that you are a sinner deserving of His wrath, and you must repent of your sins and turn to Christ. You must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To believe is then to fully trust that Christ has died in your place and that all of your sin is placed on Him and His righteousness has been imputed to your account as an act of the grace of God. And to these Jews, Jesus is pleading with them to believe that I am He. This means that they must believe that Jesus is God, that this is the I am construction again, that we've been looking at how Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world. We talked about this last week, ego eimi, in the Greek, is that I am statement from even the Old Testament in Exodus 3, where God looks at Moses in the burning bush experience and says, I am who I am. And so what we're reading here is Jesus is saying, you've got to believe that I'm God. You have to believe that I am He. The way the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 10, 9 is this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And there is a great divide between those who believe and those who do not believe. And the ultimate divide is not about 
what denomination that you're from. The ultimate divide is not about your mode of baptism. The ultimate divide is not your view on pneumatology, ecclesiology, or eschatology. The ultimate divide is between those who accept Christ and those who don't. Those who bow to his lordship and those who reject him as being a mere man. So this is the great divide that we see in this text. And now that you've seen that, I want us to look at the second heading, that not only is there a great divide, but there is mass confusion. Verses 25 to 27, there is mass confusion. Your next blank says this, many are asking questions that have already been answered. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I mean, if this question had been asked of a normal man, there would have been a temptation of being impatient and enraged. What do you mean, who am I? I've been telling you from the beginning. This would be like if you had explained to your kids that you're going on a long road trip, and after just five minutes into the trip, they say, Dad, are we there yet? Right? Well, I just told you it's going to be a long time. Right? This would be like maybe a wife offering to make a meal for her husband when he gets home from work, and after asking him five times what he would like to eat for dinner, the husband says, sorry, honey, did you say something? You know, she might be tempted to be enraged at him, right? I mean, this is like, what if you were taking a class on American history, teaching about the presidents of our nation, and a student raises their hand and says, who was the first president of our country? As a teacher, you could get infuriated, and yet Christ here doesn't get infuriated. He just answers. He's like, who am I? I'm who I've been telling you from the very beginning. I, I am God. I am Christ. He's been telling us throughout the Gospel of John. He refers to himself as the Son of God and the Son of Man. He, he tells us that he came to cleanse the temple because it's his Father's house. He told the woman at the well that he was the Messiah. Jesus tells us that not only does he do what his Father tells him to do, that he says also that the Father bears witness about him. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So how could they possibly ask at this stage, who are you? Well, Jesus made it very clear who he was. His reply expressed exactly who he was, and they had really no excuse to ask this question. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, why should I keep teaching you new things or give you new proof when you have not honestly considered what I've already told you all along? These Jews simply did not understand. And we might ask the question, why? Why didn't they understand? Maybe you remember what Jesus said about this in Luke 10, 21. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and, uh, and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And what this verse means is that spiritual truth is not understood from those of this world. God will hide his revelation from those who already reject him as God. And they will not understand. But for the simple children who have simple faith who come to him, they will have it revealed to them according to God's will who he is. What we're seeing here is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So many are asking similar questions today, and they have all been answered right here in the Bible. So when people say, well, what do you believe, and what do you mean Christ is God? It's all right here, and you can't really answer those kind of questions by looking outside of the Bible. You have to look at the Bible and use the Bible in order to answer, and the truth is this, you cannot 
remain in your sin and understand the truth. God must enlighten you by His Holy Spirit through His Word so that you can see Christ for who He really is. And so what we see here is that these people are not able, they ask a question, but the question isn't out of true sincerity, it's really just a, just a way of muddling up all that Jesus has already been revealing to them. And then we see this next sub-point here, your next blank, many will be judged for not heeding Christ's words. Verse 26, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have already heard from him. Jesus could have apparently said so much more. He had much to say to them and about them. He also had much to judge. It's as if, if the Jews were willing to listen and learn from the master, then Jesus would have offered them so much more by way of explanation and just good sound teaching. Jesus could have taken the time to help them see how far the Pharisees had gotten off of the right path. Jesus could have taken the time to help them see how he fulfilled each and every Old Testament prophecy. Jesus could have said so many things. But why cast your pearl before the swine? Why speak when no one is listening? And so Jesus had much to judge. These Pharisees didn't just miss it in a few areas. No, they, were, they weren't just a little off. They were way off. They weren't just partially depraved. They were totally depraved. And Jesus also tells us in the second part of this verse that the Father who sent him is true and that he is proclaiming what he heard from the Father. He's been telling us all along, I, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. He tells us that my teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. He tells us that his judgment is true, and he and the Father, uh, that, that he doesn't judge alone, but whatever the Father tells him. And Jesus was reminding them that he has a responsibility to represent the truth, and he has a responsibility to obey his Father. And all that he says and does comes from the Father, and Jesus is never acting unilaterally. Jesus is not acting according to his own interest, but in the interest of his Father. And like many of the prophets who went before him, Jesus is a voice of reason. He's a voice of concern. He's a voice offering an olive branch to these unbelieving Pharisees that they could come to Christ through repentance and faith, and yet they will not. And so many are asking questions that have already been answered. Many will be judged for not heeding Christ's words. And your third subpoint says this, many will not understand what Jesus is saying. Many will not understand what Jesus is saying. And we see that in verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So again, we ask the question, well, why? Why can't they understand what Jesus is saying? Why can't they understand that Jesus is talking to them about the Father? Why can't they see and the answer is because they are spiritually blind. They have been exposed to Christ and His teaching, and they have rejected Him fully. Turn with me to Matthew. as We see how Jesus deals with this concept of why they can't believe and why they don't believe and why they don't understand. And it's found right between the parable of the soils and Jesus' explanation of that parable. In Matthew 13, 14, Jesus says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus is saying that because the Jews intentionally rejected him and all he had to say, that they are fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus is saying that if they did turn, then he would heal them, but they don't want to turn. They don't want to listen. They don't want to change, even though they may act like they want to hear, and they want to act like they want to see, they really don't, and they're not able to using their own human wisdom anyway. It has to be divine revelation from God through Christ or through His Word for them to get it. And so trust me, these Jews had made their decision a long time ago to reject Jesus, and they stuck to it. And even at Jesus' crucifixion, these same unbelievers said, His blood be on us and our children. Bottom line, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about because they didn't want to understand. Unbelievers don't want to understand the Bible. They don't want to understand God's truth. Unbelievers want to keep their lives just like it is, and they don't want to change for anybody. So the reason for the confusion is that hard hearts in this world will never understand simple truths of the Bible. The seared consciences of this world will never feel guilty for ignoring Christ. And this leads us to the only answer that we could find today is that while there's a great divide and while there's mass confusion, I do have good news for you today. And here in this third point, we understand that Jesus is the only answer. He's the only answer for the great divide. He's the only answer for the mass confusion. And your first subpoint under that third heading, the only answer says this, only through the cross. Can you know that Jesus is the Messiah? Look how Jesus answers them in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Only through the cross can you know that Jesus is the Messiah. If it was unclear before the cross that Jesus was the Messiah, it would become abundantly clear after the resurrection that Jesus indeed was the risen Lord. This idea of being lifted up in verse 28 is a clear reference to the cross Jesus is saying, many of you will know that I am He when I'm lifted up at the crucifixion and especially after the resurrection. And Jesus refers to this a couple of other times here in the gospel. John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 12, 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What Jesus is saying is, you can't understand the Bible without the cross. You will not understand that I'm from the Father until you understand and accept the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the fact that the entire Bible has a redemptive thread pointing to the purpose of all of history, which is to see Christ on the cross, crucified for sinners and to be raised from the dead. And there's something about seeing that, that changes a man and it changes a woman. And the reason the world is not changed is they will not look at Christ on the cross as a true occurrence. And they will not look at his resurrection as something that really happened. And they scoff at it. But the Bible tells us what happens to some as there was a Roman soldier who watched Jesus on that particular day that he was crucified. He was likely even a participant in the crucifixion from the start to the finish. He would have been there 
when they flogged Jesus with a whip designed to take the skin off of his back. This centurion would have been there when they placed the crown of thorns on the head of Jesus. He would have been there when they mocked him and spit upon him. He would have been there when they placed the crossbar on his back and made him walk down the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. This centurion soldier was there at Golgotha, the place of the skull, when they nailed the nails in Jesus' hands and feet. He was there when they raised up the cross for all to see. He was there when Jesus said, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. And this is what the centurion said, Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw it, in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. By grace, this one centurion, he was a Gentile, a Roman unbeliever, but this one centurion saw because of the cross the truth of what Christ is saying. And what we're saying is this, the cross is necessary for you to fully understand who Jesus is. The cross and the resurrection is necessary to accomplish salvation for those who will repent and believe. And it was 50 days after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost when we hear this focused on in Peter's sermon in Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so back to this text, when Jesus says, you'll understand it when I'm lifted up. Some of you at least will understand. And only when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can we today be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to understand that Jesus is he. Not without the cross, but through the cross, you were able to see Jesus and come into a relationship with him. You can't understand Jesus' teaching without becoming a Christian. You can't understand Jesus without bowing the knee to him as Lord. The cross is necessary. The cross has always been necessary to know fully that Jesus is truly the Messiah. Not only that, but also we see that not it, that, excuse me, only through the cross can you know that Jesus is fulfilling the Father's will. It's only through the cross that you can really know that. Look at verse 28 again. He said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Only through the cross can you know that Jesus is fulfilling his Father's will? So Jesus is saying that not only will they know that I am he when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, but at that time they will also understand that he does nothing on his own authority and he speaks all that the Father has told him to speak. And again, John 5.19, John 5.30 talks about how he can do nothing on his own but whatever his Father says. These people could not see the connection between God the Father and God the Son. They wanted to think that they believed in God, but they would not accept Jesus Christ as being from the Father. And many people have similar views today. They want to believe in God in a general way. They want to believe in a higher power. You ask the average American, they would say, I believe there's a God. Now, they don't define that God. The religion of nuns is growing, N-O-N-E, those who don't believe in any faith, certainly growing in America, we hear, but there are so many who believe in God. But the problem is, once you connect Christ to God, that's when they walk away. 
The problem is when they understand the exclusivity of Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. They can't stomach it anymore. But what we're learning here in this passage is that it's only through the the cross that Jesus could really fulfill his Father's will. Think about it. If Jesus is saying all that God told him to say, that's great. But if he's not going to the cross, which the Father told the Son to go to the cross, then it would be an utter failure of the life of the Son of God. Obviously, that didn't happen. He did go to the cross. And what I'm saying is that the truth of the cross is what clears this all up. The Bible says that it is the will of the Father to crush the Son. The Bible also says it is the will of the Son to obey the Father. And without the cross, there would be no instance of the Son fulfilling the Father's will. So only through the cross does this all make sense. It is also true, your next blank, that only through the cross can you experience God's presence. The beginning of verse 29, and when he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone. Only through the cross can you experience God's presence. The Father has always been with the Son. The only exception would have been when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says that God is so pure that he cannot look upon evil. We know that the Father forsook the Son because the Son took upon himself our transgressions and our iniquities. Jesus was delivered up because of our transgression. He knew no sin but became sin on our behalf. And Jesus did this so that you and I could experience the presence of God. You understand you can't get close to God without Christ. You can't know God without Christ. It was Christ who, according to Hebrews, who was our great high priest, and he passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. It's only through the cross that we have access to the Father. Only because of what Christ went through can we know what God's presence is and experience that at all times. Listen to me. Christ was abandoned on the cross so that you don't have to be. He was forsaken so that God's presence would always be with you. There's even a tinge of this in the Great Commission when Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We understand that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That only happens to the cross. I don't know what you're going through today. Loneliness, fear, heartache. But I can tell you this, it's through the cross that you can experience the presence of God in your life and in your situation in such a way that will bring you comfort. It's only through the cross that you can truly have that kind of intimacy with God the Father. You have not been left alone. The next blank says this, only through the cross can you do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 29, the second half of it says this, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Again, when Jesus says that he always does the things that are pleasing to him, I believe that in this context, he is speaking of the cross. When he says, I'll be lifted up, he's saying that's one of the things that I'm doing, the main thing that I'm here, that's my mission. He's speaking of when he's lifted up on that cross, and you've got to consider the fact that was not easy. It's not easy to please the Lord when the Lord asks you to give up your life. It's not easy to please God in some of the difficult things, and we see this 
again, so clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus, fully God and fully man, prayed in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What physical anguish this must have been. What emotional distress Jesus suffered. And yet he prevailed. He obeyed. He was determined to do the will of the Father. This is just a little picture into the fact that he's fully man and fully God. And as a man, the dual nature of Christ reveals to us it was a struggle. And yet he never forfeited perfect, willing obedience to go to the cross on our behalf. And you and I have our own cross to bear. Being a Christian is not always easy. I remember my youth pastor growing up. Some of us from time to time would sit around at camp, talk to our youth pastor about, man, it's just tough living a pure life for God. It's hard being a Christian. And our youth pastor would just look at us and say, it was hard at the cross when Jesus bled and died for you. It was hard when he gave up his life and suffered the beating and the suffering of the nails in his hands and feet, and yet he did it anyway out of great love that maybe you and I could follow that same example as even Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And just as Jesus gave up his life on the cross, a calling to salvation is to give up all that you are and all of your desires and all of your sin and everything this world has to offer and abandon it all and follow Christ fully. We have to understand that The Lord does not delight in burnt offerings, but in us obeying the voice of the Lord through his word. For to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You cannot please the Lord with self-righteous works. You can only please the Lord by being born again through the cross. And then because of the cross, living a life of obedience and trust and dependence on him every single day. One last thought here, only through the cross can you truly believe in him. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, notice again the cross. He talks about when I'm lifted up, then you'll know. I believe that that again is central to the idea of their understanding, and many of them believed. On that day, many believed in him. Only through the cross can you believe in him. It's only through the cross that you can become a believer in Christ. It was through the preaching of the cross that many believed in him on that day. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is preaching that you will die in your sins unless you believe. And you can only believe when you see the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. He's preaching that unless you believe in that, you will die. Jesus is preaching that he must be lifted up on the cross. And it is the only way that you can be saved by his atoning sacrifice, that the Lamb of God would be killed on the cross that you and I could live. And this is what Paul took a hold of in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Galatians 6.14, but far be it for me to boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I call you today to this same cross, I say to you that the only answer for the great divide and the mass chaos of this world is to look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ unless you believe, unless you look 
to Christ being raised up, even as he says in this passage, you will never understand. Only Jesus provides the bridge to God by his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. So won't you come to him today? Won't you leave your life of sin this day? Won't you have your life transformed today? Won't you come to Christ today? Don't have a fear of death. Don't be afraid of the end. But be born again that you could look forward to Christ's return with great anticipation and no anxiety that Christ is coming back, not for the dead, but for the living. We read here in these take-home points here, unless you believe in Christ, you will die in your sins. You need to hear that message this morning. You and I need to hear that even as believers, as many of us are, need to be reminded that unless we believe, we will die in our sins. Thank God that we do believe by grace, through faith in Christ, that he's brought us out of darkness. It gives us much reason to rejoice today. We don't have to die in our sins. Don't you see it? If you're part of the unless, if you're part of the, the, the believers in the congregation this morning, then this text has no fear. This text is what would have happened, what could happen, what does happen, but not to you if you believe in Christ today. The next subpoint our bullet point says, unless you listen to Christ, you will be judged. We're expected here in the middle of this text that Jesus says, I have much to say about you and I have much to judge about you, but not if you listen to him. If you listen and you come and you confess, there is no judgment at the cross for believers. There is no condemnation for he was condemned and in our place he stood that we could be forgiven if we listen to him and follow him. And then last Unless you come to Christ, you cannot do the things that are pleasing to Him. Don't just say that you do that which the Father wants you to do. Show us that you do it. Jesus, again, didn't just say, I can only teach what my Father tells me to say. He says, I will do what my Father has called me to do. And for Christ, that meant going to the cross. What does that mean for you? Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. But if you believe, you have eternal life through Christ, and through him alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this sober passage of the Lord Jesus Christ confronting the unbelievers there present that day, telling them that they would die in their sins and that they could not seek him anymore because of utter rejection. And yet today, God, we have an opportunity, if we've sat here today under the teaching of your word, to come to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be born again by his love and his care for us. Do a special work of grace in our hearts today. Help us to be comforted by the gospel of our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray, amen.